Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show where we discuss ocean conservation and industry with professionals, activists, and scientists. I'm your host, John Sherburn, and you can find us on Twitter at Blue Earth Pod. Today's guest is Fabian Cousteau, a diver, filmmaker, and visionary. He has worked underwater for a large portion of his life, and we're extremely lucky to have him on the show today. Fabian, how are you doing today? <laughs> hey, how are you, John? Pretty good. Nice, crisp morning. Sun's shining, so I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good sign. It's a great way to start. Exactly. So we're going to get into some interesting topics today, including your underwater ISS uh, station that you're trying to make and some of your projects you've worked on over the years. But I want to start wide. Um, I like to ask this question, and I think you're going to have a good answer, an insightful answer. Yeah, no pressure there. <laughs> Why do you think the ocean is important? Well, ocean is life. Uh, no ocean, no life. It's that simple. Uh, whether you're on the ocean front or a thousand miles away, the ocean really represents everything that we love, that we enjoy, that we depend on, that, uh, that uh, are the underpinnings of uh, our economics, as well as our weather patterns, um, the things that we eat, uh, the water that we drink, the air that we breathe. 60% of our oxygen is made because of the ocean, uh, because of the phytoplankton in the ocean. Uh, imagine trying to substitute that, right? So not to be too nerdy about numbers right now, but <laughs> please do. Uh, you know, if, if, if we were going to manufacture enough oxygen for six months for all 7.8 billion people and counting, that would cost us over $38 trillion. So you know, we, we take it for granted. We take it as a, as a free thing and we don't even think about it, but the ocean provides that for us. And it's not even counted in any of the discussions that, that we have about why ocean is important. Uh, and that's just the basis of it. You know, not to mention all the intangibles, like the sense of well-being, walking down a beach or happiness, uh, you know, paddleboarding uh, or what have you, diving, of course. That's a whole, you know, more than half of our world. And since we can't, I guess, conquer it very easily, uh, it's out of the, it's in the peripheral. But I think you hit the nail on the head with some of the intangible stuff. And so I want to get into some of your experiences. Obviously, you have tons of stories from your life um, and your family, and I'm sure you talk about it all the time. So I don't want to get too much into some of that, but I'd like to ask about your background. Um, what was the most shaping moment that you had on the Calypso as a kid? Right. So, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the ocean is a public good, right? For lack of a better term, it belongs to everyone and no one. And so you have on one side, everyone benefiting from it. And on the other side, no one taking responsibility or few people taking responsibility, much less governments for its well-being. And that dichotomy, that, that complete separation of uh, reality versus benefits is what's been at the forefront of all the stresses. When I was a kid, I grew up in a very different atmosphere than, than many, especially my friends. And I didn't know it. I mean, I, you know, for us, uh, going on expedition uh, was normal, uh, normal in the sense that that was the job. That was what all my uh, family members did. And so we as kids would follow along. I subsequently learned to scuba dive from the ripe old age of four years old, which I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend to the average person, <laughs> but you know we're an unusual family. But th that gave me a, a very different perspective because I went on expeditions on a regular basis from the age of seven. And I'm not talking about expeditions the way people abuse that word now. 
I'm talking about pre-cell phones, pre, you know, uh, barely had satellite uh, at that point. I'm dating myself quite a bit, right? Uh, but you'd go on expedition to the uh, Yangtze River, to uh, Papua New Guinea, to uh, the Arctic. And when you got there, that was it. You were committed for three months or six months uh, of the term of the expedition. And, um, you know, you had to deal with things right then and there. So that those, those parameters made it so that you were immersed in the subject matter, right? You weren't distracted by anything else. And it gave us the ability, gave me as a kid, the ability to really understand new cultures, new uh, natural dynamics, uh, be it you know, climate change related uh, topics, be it uh, the predator prey behavior on a coral reef. Uh, and we were surrounded on the ship, Calypso, by experts, by people who dedicated their lives uh, as ichthyologists, as, uh, as marine biologists, as engineers, as, as uh, captains of ships, etc., and the list goes on and on. 27 people on a 147-foot boat. You get to know each other really well over that span of time. And those were my teachers. You know, I mean, the, those were the guides that, that really enriched my life. And I, I hate to say it. I mean, I was a terrible student in school because I was always dreaming of the next adventure. And I learned a lot in the field from those folks who ended up being some of my best teachers. So with that, the, the human-ocean connection became an integral part of why I think the way I do, who I am, et cetera, and, and the understanding of our impact on our planet and our, uh, in some sense, our delusion of trying to separate ourselves, trying to have dominion over the planet. Uh, those things are fallacies. You know, uh, one day after Earth Day, I can say this, uh, even though it sounds trite, uh, the planet can easily survive and thrive without us. We cannot live without the planet. I mean, it's our life support system. And the ocean connects us all. So all of this uh, was the the lesson growing up, uh, and one that I hold uh, dear to my heart today. I mean, it's it's summarized in something my grandfather used to tell me when I was a kid, which is people protect what they love, they love what they understand, and they understand what they're taught. It's it's all about information. It's all about uh, a better understanding, and hopefully, for many of us, we get to share that with our our fellow community members. Yeah. So I wanted to touch on something you just said there. And I'm curious, you talk of almost an apathy that a lot of people have towards the ocean, a lack of, I guess, understanding. And so in your mind, would it be uh, education is the best way to make sure our ocean is valued and stays uh, a viable resource? Is, is, is education to most people you think is going to fix that or anything else? I think uh, education in an empowering way, um, meaning a, a lot of times education can be difficult for some people to follow, swallow, pay attention to, etc. Uh, I know that I was a bit of an ADD kid growing up, still am, <laughs> in an adult body. Yes, but the 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 magic is in storytelling. The magic is in entrancing people, empowering them, having them be part of the solution, having them care uh, about what's going on beyond their nose, beyond their backyard, beyond their local circle. Uh, because at the end of the day, this is a closed loop system, right? And, and whether we know it or not, whether we care or not, uh, whether we're, um, we have a career in the ocean or not, whatever ha is happening in the ocean is, is happening to us. 
And we see this, if we start looking, we see this in some fundamental signs. For example, the orca, which is an apex predator in the ocean, uh, eats pretty much the same kinds of things we do. You know, what's happening to them with cancer rates and, and um, uh, lack of food and all sorts of other uh, issues, climate change related issues, which also affect their migration patterns and so on, are happening to us whether we know it or not. And that's not just to say that it affects our health, but it affects our entire way of being and affects our trajectory into the future. You know, I'm not going to pound the fist of, of conservation and all that because I don't have to. You know, at the end of the day, if we want to thrive, if we want to be able to provide a, a better uh, future for our children, or at least something that we've taken for granted uh, up until now for our children, uh, then we must be conservationists. We must understand that um, in order for us to thrive, everything else has to thrive on this planet as well. Yeah, I love that. And it's I think it's unfortunate that we have, in a way, politicized conservation as it should be. Uh, hey, we're using this world. We live on this world. It should be it's like cleaning your house is you have to make sure you're maintaining um, the place that that we that we live and that we call home. Um, I think this really translates well into some of the films you've done, because I always say that I think that documentary is one of the best ways to show people nature and to get them interested. Uh, it's what got me interested first was watching nature documentaries and you've made a couple different films. And so I want to talk to you about your filmmaking. Um, what's that process like for you? Why do you love it? And why, why do you keep going back to film uh, in, in the water? It's, it's a way of sharing the, the adventure, sharing the experience, sharing the, 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 the knowledge in a short format sort of way. Documentaries are in some way the stepchild of, of production. Um, a lot of people love Hollywood films, uh, reality TV, the way it is today, which is very much about scripted and, and, and more or less the narrative is shaped, right? It's not, it's not natural. Well, it, natural may not be the right word, but it, it's, it's not um, impromptu. The struggle with creating documentaries is you have to make them interesting. I've seen many documentaries that are excruciating. Now, maybe I come from a colored lens because I've seen a lot of them by default because of what I do. But in order for someone to hook into the messaging that you're trying to have, you have to have several things. You, you have to have a trust factor, right? What you're saying is factual and, and straightforward and you show uh, as many aspects of it as you can in a in a, a one-hour piece or two-hour piece or half-hour piece. You need to present it in a way that uh, the the viewer hooks into it, right? Thinks that it may have something to do with their passion or something that that is poignant in their lives. And then ultimately, there needs to be, and this is where a lot of them miss, there needs to be a call to action right? An empowering call to action. You can't leave people hopeless. You can't leave people uh, in a sense of despair. You, you need to, to give, not only give them hope, which, which of course is a paramount tool to creating proactive movement, but you also need to give them um, the opportunity to engage, which means that at the end of a documentary, the best way to do it is to be able to offer solutions that they can be part of easily. We're short-term thinkers, and if you don't catch that person at the end and have them engage in that activity or in that movement or in that thought process right away, chances are life's just going to sweep them away to some other 
uh, some other focus. So uh, those, those are really three very important uh, aspects. And that could be anything from the life and death struggle of a mantis shrimp to, um, to uh, climate change, which is a very intangible thing, unless you can be creative about it, or, or anything in between, you know, pollution, et cetera. But you have to do it in a way that's curiosity provoking and gets the person motivated. It's that concept of thinking globally and acting locally, I guess. And I'm curious what in your mind, um, as someone people I think will listen to, it's a name, you, got, you have a name they recognize, what are things that you think people can do to get involved, things they can do to um, not just sit on the sidelines as other people make decisions and um, try to impact the world? Well, take sharks, for example. I just saw another alarming uh, tweet this morning about uh, three quarters of all shark species are uh, threatened with extinction. This was... Uh, uh, sent out by the by the Pew Trust, which is a, a one of the top agencies, research agencies out there. It's, it's not partisan, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, that's extremely alarming because, uh, as many people may not think of sharks in their daily lives, they are the garbage cleaners of the ocean. Right. So imagine a city without uh, without uh, waste management. How quickly things go awry. It's the same in the ocean. The ocean has had hundreds and hundreds of millions of sharks for over 400 million years, virtually unchanged because they are perfect at what they do. Now, there are over 460 species of sharks, each one of which has its own adaptation. Most of them are either uh, bottom dwellers, bottom feeders, uh, vegetarian, so they eat plants and algae. Some of them eat other fish, uh, and very few are large enough to do anything to us whatsoever. Or, or I would almost say intentionally avoid us in many ways. Yet here we are. So one of the ways um, that I thought of to engage people that don't necessarily look at documentaries is creating a show some years back called Mind of a Demon. Well, <laughs> the title is thought-provoking in of itself. And it talks about demonizing these animals. And, and who's really the, the, the real demon here? And, uh, of course, we talk about facts of, well, for you know every... Uh, 90 shark incidences worldwide per year, right? There's only 90 to 95 uh, negative encounters with sharks every year worldwide. Uh, of course, they get the, the majority of media attention. Uh, there are over 100 million sharks slaughtered every single year during that same time frame. So who should really be afraid of who here? I mean, you're much more likely to get killed by a coconut attack uh, <laughs> than you are a shark. Right. But yet we've demonized them to a point that, you know, we think many people and I have some friends like this that think that if they're going to dip their toe in the ocean. They're going to it's going to get eaten by a shark. Uh, and, and that's really does a huge disservice to us uh, as well as the sharks. So uh, Mind of a Demon was taking something that was a fairly common kind of documentary, right, about sharks, about great white sharks specifically, since they're the poster child for uh, for this malign uh, misinterpretation. Yeah, thank you, Jaws, for that. <laughs> ja- well, exactly. Peter and Wendy Benchley spent the rest of their lives um, trying to reverse mm-hmm. the, the, the negative impact, but obviously too late after Hollywood grabbed it. The, the mind of a demon really uh, set off as an adventure and sneaking science in through the back door. So I built a shark-shaped submarine to swim amongst great white sharks as one of them because we hadn't done that yet because it was an interesting platform to do scientific research, but is also uh, good uh, storytelling 
uh, a good vehicle to be able to immerse the average person who probably will never get or want to swim with white sharks uh, to get a chance to go on that virtual adventure in the safety of their home and learn more about these critters in a way that's very different in a way that we can learn more about them. I wanted to talk to you about the, uh, the shark sub, which I believe was named Troy. How, can you tell me about the building of Troy, how that went down? It was a really interesting thing I researched was the, the creation of the shark-shaped sub. Yeah, so it's right behind me, actually, in my virtual background. Uh, Troy uh, was built to look and move just like a juvenile white shark, so a 14-foot-long uh, white shark. And the reason for that is that's that was about the minimum we could actually fit a human being, mm -hmm. a.k.a. yours truly yeah. here, uh, in as a, as a pilot uh, and as an observer. And in that uh, were cameras to film um, so I could see what's going on outside also. Um, and it was supposed to move like a fish, right, with a fish propulsion. We tried to avoid as much of the sensory factors as possible. So there was no engine. Uh, the, the tail was the engine, so it would beat back and forth. And it was all uh, air pressure. So we didn't have to deal with electronics or electric uh, electrolysis issues and all that, which sharks pick up very readily. It was much more of an adventure to make it work <laughs> than actually swimming amongst the sharks themselves. The sharks themselves were very, um, for the most part, very docile, uh, curious, um, cautious uh, in many ways. Very indicative of seeing another shark in their space. Uh, at the very least, we'd like to think that they bought it enough to be able to exhibit things that we saw and observed, which was shark communications, meaning you know, different positioning in the water, the, the gill flaring, the pectoral fin flexing, the grimacing, the eye roll movement, all these things are indicative of shark on shark behavior and communications. So when it worked, it worked great. But I can also tell you just as, uh, as much as, as uh, things about uh, factoids about sharks is what not to do in building a prototype shark submarine. <laughs> yeah, it seemed more like a, a novelty or an adventure in um, a why not, you know, kind, kind of a situation. But I mean, it seemed like it worked well enough. And again, at the very least, it's a good hook for audiences. Well, yeah, I mean, it originally was supposed to be a two hour show on Discovery. CBS ended up snatching it, but they, they whittled it down to one hour. So a lot of the unfortunately a lot of the science ended up um on the cutting room floor and um that was my only chagrin uh, other than that we reached a huge audience it was uh you know a second highest rating in prime time uh, it was an 8 p.m slot on cbs first time in 25 years that a documentary a natural history documentary had been on on network television in the united states now obviously things have migrated or are migrating more to online platforms uh and we're seeing um more and more documentaries mm. that uh, that are having some success. I mean, my octopus teacher being one of them, uh, and there are many other examples out there. I was trying to get so an interview with um, the people that did my octopus teacher. Have not been mm -hmm. able to secure it yet, but I'm working hard. Well, uh, keep trying, keep trying. Yeah. They're writing their success right now. They they got Oscar nominated. Uh, obviously, now's the time for them to to strike, so to speak. Yes. Um, we happen to be in talks with them. <laughs> Good. <laughs> But they're, they're very, you know, they're very busy, but I'm sure they'd be happy to. to oh, yeah. They seemed very nice from the, they emailed me back, which is more than a lot of people do. So it was, it was like, that was better than nothing. But yes, um, I think that the documentary is, is ramping back up a little bit. I, I think you're seeing, I guess, because of streaming, you're seeing us so much, even like Disney Plus has like probably two dozen different National Geographic documentaries about just different areas of the world, which I think is wonderful. 
Well, you know, the, the world of, of media is, has been now for years kind of stuck in a rut, meaning uh, they, they, they become their own worst enemy. The, the corporate part of that is quite a difficult one to maneuver and, and quite a vicious one at that, because if you produce a, or if you uh, buy a series or a, or a special that doesn't do well, uh, each time that that happens, I mean, that's quite literally uh, a risk to your job, meaning you, you could get fired for, for, uh, for taking a risk, for taking uh, a step in a different direction. And that I think is shameful. And, 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 it's, and I'm sorry to see that because it's killing the industry of traditional media. So uh, you're looking at now a resurgence of really interesting television, especially around the documentary world, because of the advent of uh, new platforms. Uh, online uh, programming now is readily accessible to the masses instead of cramming uh, the, the traditional airwaves with content that people watch, but they don't necessarily, you know, if they don't have a choice, right? You have a choice of a certain amount of channels that you regularly watch and, and you kind of zombie out. In... Um, you know, Netflix and Hulu and, and, and Prime and all that. Now you have total control of what you want to watch when you want to watch it. So we're seeing more and more people getting interested in documentaries that are well produced. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important. And I think, uh, like you said, the money definitely does have a bit of a stranglehold, which is hard to see. And it kills a lot of the creativity and the artistry with everything from um, even if you're talking about traditional movies all the way up through the, like, it's unfortunate to hear that the science got cut from that documentary you made, because um, I think that that's really important to keep sprinkled in. Um, maybe not everyone cares about it. I love learning about the things that I'm learning about and not just passively watching, you know, a bear eat a salmon or something like that, you know? <laughs> but uh, I want to talk now a bit, I guess this is going to propel us into other places. I want to talk about Mission 31. Um, so I think it was very interesting and it's topical to what you're trying to do now. Um, you spent a month underwater filming, researching, and I'd love to hear about that experience, uh, what it was like to have that long-term opportunity. So Mission 31 was a, a real interesting project. At that point, it was probably my most uh, ambitious, if not most difficult project um, of taking a team down to live and work for 31 days at the bottom of the sea based from the last remaining undersea marine laboratory called Aquarius. Uh, this was a few years ago. Uh, and Aquarius at that point was 26 years old. Uh, so it's now 30, going on 32 years, 31 years. Uh, so do the calculations. Numbers. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the point of basing a team in an underwater uh, house, if you will, um, is that the internal pressure is the same as the external pressure. So in essence, you become a saturated diver. And uh, what that means is that you give up your access to the topside world, meaning you can't go right back up like you do in scuba dive, in recreational scuba diving. Uh, but that gives you unprecedented access to the bottom world. And one of my biggest frustrations as a scuba diver, of course, is just as things get interesting underwater, it's time to go back to the surface. So here we're, we're flipping things on their head, on its head. And what that allowed us to do during Mission 31 is to do three years worth of scientific research in just 31 days because we were based at the final frontier. Uh, we were testing technologies such as what's behind me, the edutronic camera, which is a prototype at that time, uh, which uh, in a very small uh, format 
was able to shoot over 20,000 frames a second, which allows for us to look at things that the naked eye just doesn't see. You know, and you can apply this to biomechanics, biomimicry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Additionally to that, we were, we were using things like the Muse. So to look at our circadian rhythms, right? So, uh, and our stress levels and so on and so forth, which back then was also a prototype. It's now a, a commercially uh, available and successful product with an app attached and everything else. So there are a lot of things that we did that weren't necessarily documented to the public, but that um, have a real value and real play in innovative technologies, new businesses, et cetera, because we were based from uh, an extreme environment. And during those 31 days, we were also able to reach over 100,000 students live from, at that point, it was Skype in the classroom sessions, Zoom didn't exist yet. Uh, and we were able to connect them live from the bottom of the sea to look at uh, the boom of a Goliath grouper, which is uh, creates a cavitation bubble hotter than the surface of the sun, again, for a split second. And that uh, pressure wave is what knocks out the, the prey before it slurps it up. And all those things are stories that we're able to share with kids in Antarctica. There was a small group of there visiting Antarctica on a ship to uh, China, to the United States. We had a 5,000 group, uh, person group in the American Museum of Natural History that tuned in. And so we're able to answer questions live. We're able to, to, to show things live from inside and outside the habitat. And to me, I had better Wi-Fi at the bottom of the sea than my apartment in New York City. I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Um, and, and all this from being nine miles offshore and, and 65 feet down or more, depending on the dive, that was a gift. That was a huge gift to be able to bring in people who may never get a chance to visit the ocean and give them a better appreciation for what's down there, all the mysteries, you know, opening up or peeking you know, into Pandora's box and, and letting a few secrets out. I mean, it gets people really excited, uh, curious, and so on and so forth. And that's exactly what we were hoping to do. So between the, the science and the outreach, I think it was a huge success. But most importantly, it also sent me on my current journey to address the problem that we're missing a tool in the toolbox of ocean exploration. We have AUVs and ROVs and submersibles and boats and scuba diving, but we're missing a modern day undersea marine research station. Missing a house, <laughs> as you will. You can you can go out down there and travel, but you can't stay. And that is something I'm glad that you started to move into because that was where <laughs> I was going to go with it. I'm really curious to hear about Proteus. So if you will explain it for the kids in the back that don't know, and then we'll get into some of the details. <laughs> so Proteus, the name Proteus, comes from the Greek god who was the eldest son of Poseidon. And as the eldest son, he was the, the shepherd of the sea and the keeper of all knowledge. And I thought that was symbolically a really neat name to name th what our, uh, the ambitious project is on my desk right now, uh, which is building the International Space Station of the Ocean. And we aim to build something uh, in the next couple of years uh, when we can start traveling again, uh, which will be 10 times the size of Aquarius. Now, mind you, Aquarius uh, is 400 internal square feet. So imagine uh, being six of us in something the size of a uh, New York City studio apartment. <laughs> now we're building something that is 10 times that size, but maybe more important than the size itself is it will uh, contain sections that are modular, meaning you can add, subtract, uh, change out sections of the habitat 
so that you can modify what the structure is to address what you want to study. You can add uh, bunk rooms. You can add uh, other facilities. There'll be uh, an area for submarine docking station and AUV deployment. There'll be uh, multiple teams of aquanauts going out into the ocean column on a regular basis. And we're not going to be deploying people for days or weeks like previous habitats. But we're talking about weeks, months, and maybe even longer. And that plays really well into the anecdote of space colonization as well as going really out of the box and um, addressing things like viral pandemics and, and microbiology, which, you know, the, the ocean is the chemical soup that contains the vast majority of the, the solutions and the potential uh, innovative uh, approaches of things that we're tackling and we're uh, faced with as a species today. So whether we're talking about farming uh, multi-trophic uh, uh, systems so that we can feed the world, or whether we're talking about renewable energy such as OTEC, ocean thermal energy conversion, or whether we're talking about uh, pure discovery, you know, chemical chains uh, that could uh, tackle the next pandemic, uh, cure the next cancer, uh, or be a pain mitigator, thousand times more powerful than morphine without the side effects. Uh, they're all at our fingertips if we have an advanced marine station on our final frontier. I think it's important. It's just like having an ISS. I think putting the money into science and into research has that unknown effect of the possibilities are kind of limitless. And so what's your, I'm curious what the timeline is for this project. What's your uh, hopeful timeline for getting it built and seeing it host researchers? And well, all due respect to, to the International Space Station, as a matter of fact, it's an inspiration for this. This will cost a thousand times less <laughs> than the ISS. <laughs> uh, and there's value in both space exploration and inner space exploration, of course. But in the short run, as far as pragmatic solutions to today's problems and uh, to be able to, to change the course that we've set for ourselves here on this beautiful oasis in space called planet Earth, should be called planet Ocean. Uh, to answer your, your, your query earlier, 72% uh, of the surface is ocean, but 99% of our world's living space is represented by ocean. Just because we can't get down there doesn't mean that it's not viable, right? That will be one small fin step in that direction, right? Yes. Uh, and so, you know, all, all else things being equal um, and, and uh, not taking into account any uh, unforeseen challenges like another pandemic. Of course. Uh, we're talking about a 32 to 36 months uh, trajectory to install this in our favored uh, nation right now, which is Curacao. Uh, now, that's the beginning of the journey. The first of these will be based in Curacao. Uh, it may be the most iconic, most uh, comprehensive, etc. Depends on 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 the needs. But we aim to build at least seven of them in strategic locations around the world, so we, we can have a real network of uh, information and data gathering uh, systems. Uh, underwater laboratories, if you will, uh, to provide for uh, for our future uh, aquanauts. That sounds wonderful. So is this is this all cleared? Is the funding been secured? Is that something you're working on every day? I'm sure we're working on it every day, right? What is the what is the cost specifically as well? I'm curious the number for people. Sure. Uh, so the first Proteus, right? The the the, the one that uh, is right behind me right now, uh, that includes uh, mission control on land which uh, has a, a fairly significant footprint, just like Mission Control and NASA, the infrastructure necessary behind it, uh, the three years of operating costs, and so on and so forth. The, the list goes on and on. The, the, the experiential uh, aspect for, for tourism, 
Um, all those things said, it's a total budget of about 135 million US dollars. Now that sounds like a lot of money, but think about this. That is the average cost of a modern day research vessel, uh, ones that are being built today. Uh, there's anywhere from 80 to 140, 150 million US dollars. And some of them are much more. Uh, Rev Ocean is spending about 500 million US uh, euros, actually. So uh, this is actually quite reasonable. And beyond this, there are capabilities that this has that other platforms don't and vice versa. So it's not meant to eliminate or compete with uh, research vessels on the surface, uh, which have different capabilities, but it really is meant for mid and long-term research on station, which simply can't be done any other way. Uh, and I love all those other technologies, but we're missing that fundamental tool in the toolbox of oceanic research, which this represents. So we're really excited about that. And others may be smaller. Uh, others may be a uh, different configuration. You know, I could imagine one, for example, strategically placed in the Mediterranean, one maybe in the South Pacific, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but they need to be uh, located in places that are of most value, where we can really bring back all that information and engage the maximum amount of researchers and the general public. Uh, and I have a question about whether it's the general public or the scientific community, has this been met with backlash? And if so, what are some of the uh, uh, risk factors or concerns from people, uh, whether or not you share those yourself? Yeah, so there are always risks, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, you don't sign a waiver for, for no reason, especially when you, you, know, you buy a ticket to, to go into space. Or it, more importantly, if you're trained as an astronaut, you know, you're very well aware of the risks every time you step foot in a rocket or go to the ISS or uh, anticipate being one of the first colonists on Mars. Uh, and in many ways, that's that's a similar uh, aspect of uh, undersea, uh, I won't call it colonization, but certainly uh, stay at, an, at a marine uh, habitat. There are definitely risks. I mean, physiologically, psychologically, you have to be prepared for it. Uh, you're, you're in isolation. And yes, there'll be Wi-Fi. So don't worry, you can still talk to your family. But, um, but at the end of the day, you're in an extreme environment, and one that is um, often hostile, um, you know, weather patterns change, and so on and so forth. But you know, your day to day is pretty, pretty routine, typically. Um, so there are risk factors there. As far as naysayers, there will always be naysayers, but I've been overwhelmed uh, with the uh, positive uh, comments and, and encouragement from a variety of, um, of people from private industry, from uh, into the general public, from governments, uh, from government entities, which I can't name, which are, uh, which are very excited about this and, and would like to be part of it. Um, and so I, I was actually pleasantly surprised that this was a, a, a dream shared by many more people than I ever thought. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're encouraged that uh, we're doing the right thing. We have to make sure that when we do these things, when we execute uh, the, the installation of Proteus, um, that we do this in an environmentally responsible way. So that's why we're being very cautious. That's why it's taking time. Um, fundraising is always, a, is always an issue. Uh, you know, you spend a thousand times more in space exploration uh, in the United States than you do ocean exploration. So this is always a problem, um, and it's, I'm not singling out the U.S. I mean, that happens to be a, an issue around the world, but we're seeing more traction now. We're seeing um, you know, uh, 
people like Ray Dalio, you know, uh, uh, business investors uh, actually getting into the ROI aspect of Ocean. Well, I'm not against that at all. You know, public-private partnerships can be extraordinarily successful. Look at SpaceX and such. But we have to be very careful as opposed to space exploration, what we do to the ocean, we do to ourselves. So we have to have the rules and regulations in place and the, and the best practices in place so that we don't repeat history uh, of things that we've done on land. And so that's why as we're going forward with this, the Ocean Learning Center is really the, um, the governance, if you will, of what will happen, what kind of research will happen at Proteus, uh, as well as making sure that our engineers uh, from aerospace and from uh, uh, ocean uh, uh, and, and, and marine um, engineering, uh, our architect, our, our, our industrial designer, all are on the same page as far as installation of this with minimal footprint and maximum benefit. I mean, and ideally, you don't want to negatively impact the environment around you, or else it kind of makes the whole thing moot. What, what right. are you guys trying to do to make sure? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that would be insane. So what... Would what are you guys doing to make sure it minimizes the footprint? Is this going to act as a sort of like coral reef or like an artificial reef? Like what what are you guys? What's the um, end goal for making this not just you know a human bubble in the ocean, but actually a part of the ocean? Well, that's a, an excellent question, and uh, you know, <laughs> people spend hundreds of billions of dollars around the world every year fighting um, um, uh, biofouling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's funny because I. The other day we were talking to the military and, and they spent over $100 million every year careening their vessels and, and getting the, the, the marine growth off of, uh, off of their vehicles. And to us with Proteus, we actually invite that. Uh, it's it's going to be a living structure <laughs> yes. uh, in, in many ways. It'll be an experiment. So aside from you know living inside the habitat and doing all the, the advanced experimentation and all that, the, the growth on the habitat itself, as long as it doesn't interfere with uh, life support structures and things, uh, should be uh, welcomed uh, because we are in the world of the ocean, not the other way around. And so uh, those organisms that would grow on the hull uh, are things that, provided they're not too corrosive, are, are things that are just part of the ecosystem. And we can study them. We can study the, the effects and as a matter of fact, it gives us better camouflage. It allows for us to blend into the environment. One of the, the reasons for the concept of the shape of Proteus is where we're trying to mimic uh, coral reef systems and we're trying to, to be more rounded, quite literally, in, in, in many of these angles and in ways that don't only make practical sense for us, but also make aesthetic sense when you install something underwater. Uh, so yes, it'll be very interesting to see what grows on the hull you know, Aquarius uh, has its own uh, uh, biofouling, uh, and it's actually quite beautiful. You know, the cup corals growing on it and everything else, they do pull it out every so often to careen it. Um, we'll have to see what happens because it depends on what materials we use for the exterior. Uh, but uh, by and large, I, I, I don't discourage uh, growth as long as it's not on the viewports. We still want to be able to see outside. Of course. Um, yeah, I think that was like one of the first things when I f- was researching this that I was imagining is this kind of man-made structure covered in life, and I think it's beautiful. And uh, you are that you're in that environment. It's like if it's like if you bought a house and killed all the grass. Like, why would you do that? It's what's supposed to grow there. Um, the those the the plants and the animals are 
you're just one of, of many in that situation. And I think the benefit to what you're doing is that you do have human curiosity on your side. The reason I think a lot of people are excited for this is because that is really all that we do is create and learn. And this provides us with a rare opportunity to, instead of just visiting the ocean, having potentially sort of a mainstay down there. Um, so I'm curious if you have anything else you want to talk about in terms of uh, Proteus, what life would be like uh, in Proteus, how you know how you do plan on uh, building it, if you have any idea of some of the materials you're going to use or anything else like that, I'd love to hear just final thoughts on this project. Well, I, I just want to say, I mean, this may sound far-fetched for a lot of people to build an international space station of the sea, but it's actually uh, quite uh, logical and something that is based on, on reality. My grandfather built the first underwater habitats in the 1960s, uh, along with uh, the U.S. Navy and, and, and several other countries. Uh, the Italians, uh, I forgot the name of their, their structure, but the, the Germans had uh, Helgeland and, and, there were, and there were many others around the world, about 18 of them, I believe. And so uh, that really just makes the point that we're based on past pioneering efforts and successes. And with the, the modern way of doing things, with being able to integrate new technologies, new materials, new approaches, we're able to uh, incorporate uh, you know, that modularity both inside and outside the habitat uh, so that we can switch things out very quickly, keep up with modern technologies and address future demands. Uh, we're addressing the shortcomings of previous habitats that were only built for mission-specific uh, topics or uh, for short periods of time, be it a year, five years, but no longer. We're building this to last a minimum of 15 years. Uh, and so with that, we, we're, we're putting into practice modern thinking, modern ways of, of, of doing things so that we can have a better finger on the pulse of oceanic health. It's not just to do science and outreach. I mean, this is really a, a base station uh, that will be able to impart a better understanding of what's happening to our ocean in real time. Uh, the seventh senses array, which is in, uh, the, the nerve system, if you will, of Proteus, will allow for us to look in real time at microplastics, right? So you can, ha you can have microplastic counts on a, on a second by second basis. Looking at uh, climate change related issues, whether it's pH or, sal or, or salinity or, or acidification or what have you. Looking at temperature variations and so on so that we can make better uh, decisions, uh, not hours or days ahead of time of a major storm event, but weeks, months, potentially longer so that we can save lives, that we can help save lives, and that we can also uh, have less economic impact on that local community. So um, th those things are, are just uh, ancillary uh, parts of why something like a Proteus needs to exist. Because by and large, we terrestrial creatures uh, don't look under the blue veneer enough, but the ocean mitigates and dictates everything that we depend on here on land. And so for us to have that kind of access to what's going on in that foreign environment will really help us in the long run making better decisions, everything from a governmental level 
to a, a, a corporate level, to a, a community, local community level, so that we can live more in symbiotic relationship with our ocean rather than fighting against it. Fabian, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been wonderful talking to you. If you want to plug um, any of your resources, uh, whether it's a Twitter or one of your websites, anything like that, feel free to plug it now. Um, I, I'm sure people would want to check out the stuff we've been talking about today. Yeah, I mean, if you want more information, that's that's very easy. You can either follow uh, my my social media feeds, which are F Cousteau. That's F C O U S T E A U, or you can always check out the website. Uh, that's uh, Fabian Cousteau uh, O L C dot org. Perfect. Thank you for coming on today, and um, I'm wishing you all the best with Proteus, and maybe we can have you on some other time if when that this comes down the line. Absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. We're brought to you, as always, by the CT Scuba Academy, and we release episodes every Monday, so be sure to check us out everywhere you get podcasts. You can subscribe to our Twitter at Blue Earth Pod, and you can find all of our episodes as well on the CT Scuba website. Thank you.